For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. What's up, everybody? This is going to be another solo cast of In Liberty and Health. Um, Today we're going to talk about welfare and obesity. Um, Some people may ask what the importance is, but uh, I've been reading through some of the science here and some studies on linking the two together. So um, I guess without further ado, we'll get into it here. Obesity means having too much body fat. Um, I figure it's probably important to define obesity before we start jumping down this rabbit hole just so we're all clear. Um, It is different from being overweight, which means weighing too much. The weight may come from muscle, bone, fat, and or body water. Both terms mean that a person's weight is greater than what's considered healthy for his or her weight. Um, When we talk about BMI, obesity, um, sometimes they're not exactly perfect terms. But your waist over height ratio can actually be a pretty good measurement overall, which kind of loosely is BMI, which is your body mass index. Um, If you have a very, very wide waist and you're not that tall, then generally that means that you're probably overweight. Now, are there exceptions to the rule? Can you be healthy and still be, um, let's say, have a higher body fat percentage? Yes, absolutely. There's plenty of people who are what they consider fat but fit, but obesity is a independent risk factor for a lot of disease and overall poor health and a shorter lifespan. That's not to say that you can't make improvements or that you're a bad person. There's nothing inherently morally wrong with being obese. Um, I figure that's appropriate to knock right out of the park because people may say that I'm fat shaming or that I'm saying fat people are bad people. No, I don't think that at all. If it is your choice to remain overweight and you accept the risks or you're just okay with being the way you are, there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to accept that you may, that you are at an increased risk of disease, poor health, and a shorter life. Once again, if that's what you deem okay, then that's what you deem okay and is what it is. Um, Personally, me, I've seen the rest of my family go through a lot of health issues and I've seen how it can affect their life later on. And for me personally, I think it's important that I focus on health span overall, which your health span would be considered the amount of time in your life that you remain healthy. So just to kind of start off the podcast, I wanted to cover that just to make sure that we're all on the same page. 
Um, so without further delay here, we're going to start talking about um, some science around this. Uh, prevalence of optimal metabolic health in American adults, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, 2009 to 2016. Um, this paper basically talks about how almost 90% of adults do not meet the minimum requirements to be considered metabolically well among six, diff six different markers. Um, We'll just take a brief read through the study. Several guidelines for cardiometabolic risk factor identification and management have been released in recent years, but there are no estimates of current prevalence of metabolic health among adults in the United States. We estimated the proportion of American adults with optimal cardiometabolic health using different guidelines. So basically they just assessed, um, I think it was, let me make sure I got the right number here. I apologize. Um, I believe it was close to like 10,000 people. I don't see it here, but it was listed on a different page. Um, they took about 10,000 people and measured them amongst a bunch of different markers. And yes, 10,000 people obviously doesn't represent 330 million people which live in the U.S., but it can paint a relatively accurate picture. So the methods were data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey 2009-2016 were analyzed using the most recent guidelines. Metabolic health was defined as having optimal levels of waist circumference, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1c, blood pressure, triglycerides, and high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, which is your um, LDL, and not taking any related medication. So that's those are the six measurements that they use to assess people's cardiometabolic health or their it, that's pretty a pretty good marker and proxy for overall health. Results. Changing from ATP3 Adult Treatment Panel 3 guidelines to more recent cut points decreased with the proportion of metabolically healthy Americans from 19.9% um, down to 12.2%. Dropping waist circumference from the definition increased the percentage of adults with optimal metabolic health to 17.6%. Characteristics associated with greater prevalence of metabolic health were fe female gender, youth, more education, never smoking, practi practicing vigorous physical activity, and low body mass index. Less than one-third of normal weight adults were metabolically healthy, and the prevalence decreased to 8% and 0.5% in overweight and obese individuals, respectively. So that's going to say that actually um, women... The younger who have a better education, haven't smoked, or exercise, um, tend to be more metabolically well. I'm sure that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, the conclusions, prevalence of metabolic health in American adults is alarmingly low, even in normal weight individuals. Large number of people not achieving optimal levels of risk factors, even in low-risk groups, has serious implications for public health. Um, over the last two years, this should be very, very obvious that... Um, Metabolic health is a very, very important thing. I know you don't hear it on the news much at all, but if you are overweight and obese, then you are significantly more likely to see adverse health, health outcomes to various different diseases, including COVID-19. They want you to believe that you could just stay locked in your house and take a vaccine and everything will be fine, but that's just not the truth. And actually, if they're really concerned about overall health and vaccine efficacy even, then if you're more metabolically well, then vaccine efficacy is increased as you're more metabolically well. Um, that was off of PubMed. I'll put that in the show notes just so anybody can read that. I pretty much read it damn near word for word. 
But uh, in case anybody doesn't believe me or if you just want to see it for yourself, it'll be there. Um, so continuing on, this is a research article, The Impact of Social Assistance Programs on Population Health, a Systematic Review of Research in High-Income Countries. So this um, study basically goes over high-income countries and see how um, welfare actually tends to bring down overall health. So real quick, background, socioeconomic disadvantage is a fundamental cause of morbidity and mortality. One of the most important ways that government buffered the adverse consequence of socioeconomic disadvantage is through the provision of social assistance. We conducted a systematic review of research examining the health impact of social assistance programs in high-income countries. Um, we systematically searched Embase, Medline, ProQuest, Scopus, and Web of Science from inception of December 2017 for peer-reviewed studies published in English language journals. We identified empirical patterns through a qualitative synthesis of evidence. We also evaluated the empirical rigor of the selected literature. So basically that's just saying that they assessed all the individual studies and made sure that they were up to par, that they were legitimate. 17 studies met our inclusion criteria. 13 descriptive studies rated as weak, moderate, and strong found that social assistance is associated with adverse health outcomes and that social assistance recipients exhibit worse health outcomes relative to non-recipients. Four experimental and quasi-experimental studies, all rated as strong, found that efforts to limit the receipt of social assistance or reduce its generosity, also known as welfare reform, were associated with adverse health trends. Um, basically, that's just saying that people who receive welfare typically are not in that good of health and that actually giving people welfare typically doesn't lead to their health improving. When you um, incentivize something, you generally get more of it. When you disincentivize something, you get less of it. Um, if you hand people cheap food, highly energy dense food that's easy to overconsume, and they don't have to pay for it, then it's going to be very, very easy for them to just keep doing that because what incentive do you have to do anything else? If you don't lay the incentive for people to get back to work to treat themselves better, then they're just not going to do it. Conclusions. Evidence from the existing literature suggests that social assistance programs in high-income countries are failing to maintain the health of socioeconomically disadvantaged populations. These findings may in part reflect the influence of residual confounding due to unobserved characteristics that distinguish recipients from non-recipients. They may also indicate that the scope and generosity of existing programs are insufficient to offset the negative health consequences of severe socioeconomic disadvantage. So... I would agree with their conclusion that when you put people on welfare, once again, their health does not tend to improve. Um, you see a lot of people who use SNAP and EBT cards. They're not generally buying healthy foods, and we'll cover that a little bit later on here. But in the areas that they live, they typically don't have access to the same kind of food that perhaps people that are a little bit more well-off do. They may not have the transportation. Um, the healthier foods may just not seem as affordable, although I think they are as a person who tries to budget for his food and budget for more healthier options. Um, I think a lot of people would be surprised to find that, you know, buying fruits or even grass-fed meat, yeah, the grass-fed meat may be a little bit more expensive, but fruits and vegetables really aren't that expensive and they provide a lot of satiety per calorie because they're a lot of water and fiber. Um, the water and fiber 
takes up a lot of room in your stomach and therefore makes you feel more satiated. It's the um, different deal with red meat or just animal products in general because they have a high protein content and protein tends to be very satiating plus the added benefit of having a high thermic effect of food. The high thermic effect of food is going to make, um, you're going to burn calories in order to digest said food. Um, I'll just read through this one real quick. Uh, they don't really list out the meat of the study here. This is from sciencedirect.com. Obesity under affluence varies by welfare regimes, the effect of fast food, insecurity, and inequality. Among affluent countries, those with market liberal welfare regimes, which are also English speaking, tend to have the highest prevalence of obesity. The impact of cheap, accessible, high energy food is often invoked in explanation. An alternative approach is that overeating is a response to stress and that competition, uncertainty, and inequality make market liberal societies more stressful. Um, I disagree with the competition part because I believe that competition does breed greatness. And at the same time, I also believe that it will eventually make people put out a better product for cheaper. That's kind of the whole idea around free markets and uh, volunteerism. Um, overeating may be a response to stress. I tend to believe that because some people do stress eat. But um, in market liberal countries with market liberal welfare regimes, we tend to have fast food restaurants. We tend to have a lot of very, very easy, cheap food that's just so easy to overconsume. A general rule, in my opinion, is that you should not eat foods that are high in carbohydrate and fat together and low in protein because they're just going to be so easy to overconsume. You think about foods that are high in fat, high in carbs, and low in protein. You think about milkshakes, you think about chocolate, you think about nuts. Um, these foods generally are not very voluminous, but they're very calorically dense. And our brains are kind of hardwired to find these very, very calorically dense foods and overconsume it because, you know, our hindbrain doesn't understand that this food's so, you know, that, that food's in abundance now, right? People tend to think that, you know, or, or our brains are just wired so that if we find these calorically dense foods, we just eat and eat and eat and eat because we don't know when the next meal is going to come. Our ancestors didn't have Wendy's. They didn't have McDonald's. They didn't have milkshakes. They had to go out and kill things to get food. We don't have to do that, but our high brains don't understand that. You know, you get this huge dopamine hit when you eat these highly palatable foods. So you just want to keep eating and eating and eating and they don't satiate you at all. So you're basic internal hunger cues are blunted. You don't know when you're full, so you're just going to keep eating. Um, this ecological regression meta-study pulls 96 body weight surveys from 11 countries. Excuse me. The fast food shock impact is found to work most strongly in market liberal countries. Economic insecurity measured in several different ways was almost twice as powerful while the impact of inequality was weak and went in the opposite direction. So once again, just to kind of sum up that study, in countries like ours, um, essentially, it's just so easy to get food that's easy to overconsume. And when you pay people to not work and you pay people to stay at home or you pay people who aren't productive and you only give them access to food that's easy to overconsume, then they're going to overconsume and therefore become obese. Um, read from this study here. Sorry, I was right in the middle of it. 
The relationship between obesity and participation in the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program is mental health a mediator. Um, read from the abstract real quick, and we'll kind of take a breeze through this one as well. Focusing on adults from the Los Angeles Family and Neighborhood Survey, we investigated whether mental health was a mediator in the association between obesity and participation in the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. The analysis included 1,776 SNAP participants and eligible non-participants. SNAP participants had higher odds of obesity than eligible non-participants. However, mental health was not a mediator in the association between SNAP participation and obesity. SNAP, once again, is Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. We recommend changes in the SNAP to promote healthier food habits among participants and reduce the stress associated with participation. Um, to go on a little tangent before we start diving into this study, there used to be a stigma around being on welfare, right? Uh, back 100 years ago, there's a stigma about being a single mother. There was stigmas around these kind of things. People didn't want to take welfare because your overall your overall self-esteem and how you feel about yourself kind of relies on what you're able to do, what you do, and how you feel about that. Um, if you're not contributing to society and you don't feel like you're pulling your own weight, then typically your mental health may be a little bit worse. Um, I know when I was about 70 pounds heavier, I was 250 pounds at one point, I did not feel mentally well at all. And I feel like that's the way it goes for a lot of people. I've heard some people say that there is um, a link between your gut and the food you ingest and the inflammatory cytokines that go from your gut that can go through your spine and reach up to your brain and cause inflammation of the brain, which causes depression, anxiety, and things like that. Um, now, obviously, I'm no doctor. I don't know about that. But to me, it sounds logical. And I know that once I lost a lot of weight that I did feel a lot better about myself. Now, you can't necessarily, can't necessarily say correlation is causation. But I do think once people get to a better metabolic state and they're leaner, and they're healthier, that they do probably feel overall better because it's hard to lose weight and keep it off. I shouldn't say it's hard to lose weight. Um, actually, I wanna say it's about 75% of people will lose weight, but gain it all back within the first year. And then after the second year, 85% of people. After the third year, 95% of people fail their diets and they gain back the weight that they lost and even gain some more. So we don't have a weight loss problem, we have a weight maintenance problem. People can lose weight, but they just have trouble keeping it off. This is kind of why I never tell people, eat less, move more. I never tell people, oh, just caloric deficit. Most people don't know what that looks like. When you tell people eat less, move more, there's nothing actionable there. And if you don't give people actionable advice, what are they supposed to do? They don't know what eating less and moving more looks like. Because if you just tell people to eat less, yeah, they may be able to do that for a time, but they're going to get hungry. You're going to have ghrelin um, telling you that, hey, 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 we're hungry, we're hungry, we need calories. And if you can't sustain that hunger to lose weight or you're not enjoying it, then eventually you're going to say, screw it, you're just going to binge. You're going to eat a ton of food, and you're going to lose all the progress that you made. Um, so that's why it's important for people to find what they enjoy, find an approach that works for them, 
Um, more than likely increase protein, increase fiber, eat foods that will keep you fuller for longer to sustain a weight loss kind of diet. Um, we'll just breeze through this. Um, it's been suggested that SNAP participation may negatively affect mental health and that poor mental health may lead to obesity due to disrupted eating patterns or reduced physical activity. The stress of needing SNAP benefits and, and not being able to independently support one's family may detrimentally impact mental health. SNAP participation has been associated with poor mental health among the food insufficient receiving means tested benefits, which include SNAP, has been associated with the increased depression among unemployed women. Previous research also shows that 40% of SNAP participants report feelings of embarrassment or stigma for having used SNAP benefits or having other people find out that they use SNAP benefits. However, the adoption of electronic benefit transfer systems seems to have reduced stigma levels. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically, if you make it so that way people don't know you have SNAP, then of course you're not going to feel stigma about it because you don't feel bad because people don't know. The association between poor mental health and obesity is clearly established. However, questions regarding casualty uh, and the role of mental health in mediating the relationship between SNAP participation and obesity remain. For example, the relationship between poor mental health and obesity could be bi-directional. In addition, having poor mental health may impair one's ability to work, resulting in SNAP participation. Um, I've heard it said that people who have been unemployed for a longer amount of time typically stay jobless compared to people who just lost their job. Because, at least I would believe, that employers look at that and say... You know, this person just lost their job, so they're probably still kind of in the momentum, right? They're still capable of working. They know that they have to show up on time. They know that they have to work when they're at work. People who've been unemployed for longer may have difficulty adapting that lifestyle, so therefore there's kind of this cliff where once you get to a certain point, you're just no longer considered employable because you've been unemployed for so long that people may doubt your ability or your ethic you know, your willingness to work. Um, the objectives of the study were to confirm that SNAP participation is associated with obesity among adults from a representative sample of households in Los Angeles County and to determine whether the association between SNAP participation and obesity, obesity is mediated by mental health. To our knowledge, this hypothesis has not been empirically tested before. Um, uh, I don't want to bog down too much here there's a lot to read here i'll put this in the show notes just in case people want to read through it um, in a bivariate analysis snap participants and eligible non-participants were different in terms of race race ethnicity marital status education income working status nativity and years in the united states and food in insufficiency jesus obesity prevalence among snap participants was almost double and the prevalence of having a mental health problem more than triple when compared to eligible non-participants. Mental health did not mediate the association between SNAP participation and obesity. The mediation value is 1.42, which is greater than 1.96, and therefore not significant. Results from multivariate mediation analysis show that SNAP participants had almost three times the odds of being obese when compared with eligible non-participants. This association was only slightly attenuated when mental health was incorporated into the model. Those who participated in SNAP had four times the odds of reporting mental health problem compared to eligible non-participants. Uh, 
So if you are on welfare, then your likelihood of being obese and having mental health issues is significantly higher. Um, the reason why I'm kind of tying this all into my show is that in order for us to have a free society, we have to encourage robust mental and physical health. We don't want people taking public assistance. We want people to feel good about themselves. We want people to exercise. We want people to eat a healthy diet and we want people to be free. Um, the likelihood of you needing welfare is higher if you cannot maintain your own independence. If you don't maintain your own independence, then you need somebody else to provide something for you. Um, we'll just go through the conclusions real quick. To date, there is mounting evidence that SNAP participants is associated with obesity, but the casual mechanisms have yet to be established. Regardless of the casual pathways linking SNAP participation and obesity, researchers recognize the potential of SNAP to help prevent obesity because it reaches low-income populations who have high rates of obesity and chronic disease. Although the U.S. Department of Agriculture has not officially proposed any changes to SNAP, some suggested modifications with broad public support include targeted price manipulation through bonuses or coupons for fruit vegetable purchases, requiring SNAP vendors to carry healthier options, and restricting purchase of sodas and other unhealthy foods. A recent study has shown that banning purchase of sugar-sweetened beverages with SNAP dollars would lead to a reduction in obesity prevalence among SNAP participants of 0.9 percentage points in 10 years, which translates to approximately 422,000 fewer people suffering from obesity. Our results support the idea that realignment of SNAP goals with public health objectives and incentivizing healthier food habits among participants is needed. Further, we encourage promotion of alternative ways to enroll in SNAP, such as online and by phone, in order to reduce the stress associated with SNAP application. Further research should also focus on disentangling the association between SNAP participation and mental health and obesity. Um, I disagree with their conclusion, because in New York, they had banned large pops at one point. You know what people did? Instead of buying one large pop, they bought two medium. <laughs> uh, I don't believe it's the way the program's structured. I believe it's the program itself. This is what a lot of conservatives and left wings get wrong or left wingers get wrong about government. Essentially, it's just if we had the right people in there, then we'd be fine. If you know they would just follow the Constitution. Or if we just get Bernie Sanders in, then we're going to have this socialist utopia, capitalism be damned. No one ever wants to say that the golden ring of power here is the problem. That the government and enabling people to do these things is the problem. Um, if you had private welfare programs or charities, then they would be holding to results. They would need to see people improve or, you know show that they're moving in the right direction to continue to receive these benefits until the point that they no longer need said benefits. If you just hand people out money and resources indiscriminately, then no one's ever going to change because they have no incentive for that change. In our Ancapistan libertarian utopia, you would be able to take the money away if you see that people are no longer improving their behavior because you know you're just throwing good money after bad there's no reason to do that um so we're gonna breeze through one last study and we'll kind of wrap up here uh let me make sure i got the right bookmark right here 
Um, this study mainly focuses on women, but it's still applicable. Getting fat on government cheese, the connection between social welfare, welfare participation, gender, and obesity in America. This is a pretty beefy paper. They got graphs. There's all sorts of stuff in here. I really enjoyed reading it. I know a lot of people aren't the same way. So uh, we'll just kind of breeze through this and then we'll uh, close it out here. So let me make sure I'm on the right page. Um, once a participate, a participant qualifies and receives their EBT card, the primary question remains is where the benefits may be spent. Generally, a retailer will qualify to participate in SNAP benefits that they offer for sale on a continuous basis at least three varieties of qualifying A, meat, poultry, or fish, B, bread or cereal, C, vegetables or fruits, and D, dairy products. Alternatively, retailers who earn more than half of the total dollar amount of all sales in the form of eligible food staples also qualify. Once a retailer qualifies under the federal guidelines, the retailers may accept EBT cards from any participant. So basically, if they meet a minimum threshold of certain foods and they're able to qualify to take money from people who hold EBT cards, um, I believe that actually some of the foods that are um, people would consider junk foods, the little Debbies, uh, different fruit pies, stuff like that, are actually considered fruits or vegetables. And French fries, I believe, too, are considered vegetables, which is kind of funny because... Yeah, you're loosely correct, but think about what french fries are. You take a starchy carbohydrate, right? A potato. You cut it up into a bunch of little pieces, and then you deep fry it in oil. Well, oils are fats. Now, what did I say earlier? Foods that are easy to overconsume are high in carbohydrates and fats. You ever notice when you get a large fry or something, you just don't want to stop eating them? Well, that's because you took a starchy carbohydrate, and you soaked it in oil, and then it tastes delicious. You put a little salt on it, no satiation, you just overconsume it. So that's what's considered a vegetable in some cases. So, you know, you, you see the problem. Um, continue on the paper here. Impossible choices. Addressing limited access to healthy foods. The first major problem driving obesity among SNAP participants, a group largely made up of poor women, stems from the contradiction between advised purchases and real-world market conditions. While the Farm Bill of 2002 introduced new funding to instruct participants on proper nutrition, no accompanying provision promoting access to those healthy food suggested by the nutritional materials was ever even considered. Instead, Congress has and continues to proceed on the presumption that all Americans have easy access to a participating supermarket where they can purchase the quote-unquote right foods. Um... This also goes to, oh, uh, what the hell is the, certain licensing, so you can't build certain things in certain places, zoning restrictions, you can't build certain things in certain places because the government has it so that you just can't build where you want. Um, I would think if there was a more free market way or that people could build anywhere and you didn't have high crime because of welfare and that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down then you know perhaps healthier supermarkets would be near more poor areas um according to the usda the following classes of products are available for purchase with an individual's monthly allotment of food stamps breads and cereals fruits and vegetables, meats, fish, and poultry, and dairy products, as well as seeds or plants that will produce food. At the same time, 
The SNAP forbids the use of food stamps to purchase alcohol, tobacco, non-food items like paper products and pet food, vitamins and medicines, food eaten in the store, and hot foods. Excuse me. Though this list suggests participants gain access to a balance of healthy foods, what happens when the only accepting provider is a small corner store stocking only high-fat meats, whole milk, high-calorie breads, and cereals, and possibly no produce? This situation is not as far-fetched as it may seem. Largely, portions of poor urban and rural residents live in so-called food deserts. A food desert refers to an area with severely limited access to consumer food sources. So you do see this a lot in some of the areas where I grew up. I know this is antidote, but um, you would go to some poor areas, Section 8 housing, and there would be gas stations. Well, gas stations typically don't have the healthiest of foods, right? You see all the hyperpalatable, highly processed foods sitting on the shelves. You don't see any, you know, bananas on the counter, apples. There's Twinkies, there's Moon Pies, there's these little processed meats, um, disgusting stuff sitting there turning under a heat lamp, stuff that's very, very cheap and not really good for you. In these food deserts, individuals are often forced to make difficult consumptive choices in areas where only convenience stores with their very limited selection of healthy foods are readily accessible. Individuals tend to choose among healthy options rather than undertake the often difficult task of coordinating childcare and transportation to reach and perhaps more problematically bring large amounts of groceries back from supermarkets outside their neighborhoods. In a study of four Minneapolis food deserts, Researchers found that prices within the surveyed area were markedly higher than at major retail chains outside the selected area, and basic healthy foods like apples and broccoli were virtually unavailable. This phenomenon is not limited, however, to Minneapolis. Food deserts exist in New York City, Chicago, San Francisco Bay Area, and other major metropolitan and rural areas. Additionally, these deserts consistently arise only in areas of significant poverty, limiting their impact to those most likely to be constrained in their purchasing power, reliant upon SNAP benefits to purchase food, impoverished women. Now, once again, I don't believe it's just impoverished women. I believe that extends out to those who are married to them and relationships with them, their children. Um, it, it branches out. They're overlooked by the USDA. These food deserts encompassing a large number of poor communities represent a major problem in the battle against obesity. In short, food deserts erect high barriers between SNAP benefits and healthy food choices, virtually insurmountable barriers for women forced to secure childcare, forego wages, and either make use of the time-consuming public transportation or procure other means of reaching supermarkets to get access to healthy foods. This impacts obesity rates because individuals subject to these pressures will simply elect the more expedient option of walking to the corner store and purchasing processed food, whole milk, and high-calorie breads in place of much-needed fruits and vegetables. In an actually representative sample of low-income households, a recent study discovered that easy access to supermarkets offering a broad array of choices increased household consumption of fruits and vegetables by roughly 84 grams a day among SNAP participants. Yet at the same time, 25% of SNAP participants lacked quote-unquote easy access to a supermarket and the attendant healthy eating benefits. So basically, they're saying that people who don't have access to supermarkets where there's healthy food, they just eat more junk food because they're going to forego the time and all the effort that it takes to procure, you know, care for your child or take the bus, 
that the task of going to get groceries if they don't have transportation, they're going to forego that and just walk to the corner store to get highly palatable food that's calorically dense and will give them a lot of calories to just you know make it to the next day. Limited access to supermarkets and ready access to convenience stores not only correlates to fruit and vegetable consumption, but more importantly, directly correlates to obesity. In 2006, study researchers Jesus, discovered that relative proximity to a supermarket reduced the prevalence of obesity by an obesity prevalence ratio of 0.83, whereas relative proximity to convenience stores in place of supermarkets with their limited healthy choice options produced a high obesity prevalence of 1.16. Ultimately, educational support on healthy choices fails to play a casual role in increasing fruit and vegetable consumption when divorced from the reality of limited supermarket access. Um, yeah, if you don't tell people about healthy foods, where to get them, or that you should go and eat them, people generally aren't going to care. But even when you do, still people eat like crap. Everybody knows you're supposed to eat fruits and veggies. And <clears throat> I think it's a travesty that they demonize meat as much as they have because I think um, animal foods are a great source of protein. We know that because their operating systems essentially match ours, right? So when you look at plant proteins versus animal proteins, the amount of leucine and amino acids differs. Animals, because they kind of have to, they have the same operating system, if you will, as us, they're meat. So they have to eat in a way that's kind of conductive for their themselves. And we historically have eaten animals for so long. Um, their amino acid profile is more so that it's better for us, right? It has more leucine content, which triggers muscle protein synthesis, and you have to eat less of animal protein to get the same response than you would of plant protein. Basically, you would have to have five cups of quinoa to equal the same amount of protein and leucine from one small chicken breast. Anyways, consequently, this array of empirical research on the importance of access, not simply benefits, suggests that USDA efforts to cultivate a healthy SNAP program are failing. Educating participants on what choices to make cannot decrease obesity rates among participants if they have no opportunity to make those choices. The majority of food SNAP participants reside in food deserts and more than 25% cannot reach and return from a supermarket within the 30-minute window necessary to encourage use of supermarkets over closer convenience stores. As such, even when participants are left with ample benefits, they have nothing healthy to spend them on, leading to almost exclusive consumption of high-calorie foods in place of healthier choices. Um, I think I'm going to finish up from this study here. Basically, the conclusion is welfare really hurts more than it helps. And the reason why I've kind of made this specific podcast about welfare and overall health is that in order for us to achieve a freer society, we need to get as many people off welfare as possible. So that way, when we go to abolish the program or roll it back, that there's less people that are harmed by that. Um, I do not have all the answers. I don't think anybody has all the answers for what the issue going forward is. But one of it is going to have to be to cultivate and make a culture of healthier people who understand how to maintain their health, how to lose weight, and how to encourage others to do the same thing. It's not going to be easy. Um, but I'm hoping through this podcast, through the guests I have on, through the people I introduce other people to, that we can cultivate this culture of health and wellness and encourage people to get away from government solutions and more towards health 
family and wholesome solutions that create a better society. And once we have that society, then we can tolerate the responsibility that comes with freedom. I think that's what we all want. I think that's what libertarians always talk about. At least that's how I interpret it. So in essence, I hope what you took away from this podcast was that there's a strong correlation between obesity and welfare and in order for us to maintain a society that can cultivate freedom and produce the environment so that we can enjoy and sustain freedom, we need to be healthy. I think that's probably the most important takeaway that I can distill into everybody. So um, thank you everybody for listening. Um, I'm very, very grateful for everybody's support as far as I've gotten it. And I'm very thankful for all the guests that I've got to have on. Um, I hope people are enjoying the podcast. Feel free to download it everywhere. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Leave reviews where you can. It would really mean a lot to me. Um, And let's get this message out to as many people as we can. Right? If we want to live in a freer society in our lifetime, then let's get to it, guys. All right? Well, in liberty and health, everybody, take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.